0: I have always loved horses. It is the most beautiful and majestic animal in the world, in my opinion. As a little kid, I wanted so badly to take horseback riding lessons, but we could not afford it. In my 40s in Morocco, I met Reina, another Swiss who owned a small horse ranch, and I was finally able to make my dream come true and learn to ride. What always amazed me was the incredible strength of these magnificent creatures. And yet, with an almost imperceptible nudge of a leg muscle, it would submit its amazing strength to the will of the rider. I always maintained a very healthy respect for my four-legged friends, knowing they were incredibly powerful and they could throw me off any time if they wanted to, and which they might have once or twice. I recently learned the meaning of the word meekness in Greek. It is the word praus, and it means a tamed wild animal. It struck me that this is actually a really beautiful image of what we are talking about today, humility. It is strength, under control. It is strength submitted, which stands in stark contrast to our more common understanding of humility as timid or weak. Today, we will catch glimpses of this beautiful attribute in the life of David. But of course, the ultimate embodiment of humility is seen in Jesus and its climax on the cross. Our Savior did not give up his power, but he laid it down. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Incredible strength submitted for the sake of others. Praus is also the word used for Jesus in Matthew 11:29. 29. I am meek and humble in spirit. Humility is not feeling worthless or being a doormat, having low self-esteem or denying your strengths or achievements. The biblical meaning of humility actually is quite the opposite. I love John Dixon's take on this. (laughs) I knew this would happen. (laughs) Humility is redirecting your power in service of others. Humility is the choice to forego your status, to use your resources or your influence for the good of others. And as C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. As we all know too well, humility does not come naturally to us, whereas pride creeps in so easily. We all have it. And the more we think we don't, the more we do. We don't like to see pride in other people, but we're often oblivious to the pride in our own heart. And as we can clearly see in King Saul's life, pride can lead to anger, to fear and jealousy. C.S. Lewis called it the essential vice, the utmost evil. He said that other vices are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. He called it the complete anti-God state of mind. In contrast, true humility is truly beautiful. I think that's why we love and are deeply touched by stories of a prince trading places with a pauper, a wealthy man living simply, or royalty caring for the poor. When I first went to Morocco, I um, didn't know Arabic well. I found myself in a bakery, in a small bakery in Rabat, in the capital, and I wanted to buy ice cream. So um, I didn't know how to say that in Arabic. So I went up to this older, elegant-looking lady and said, excuse me, uh, how do I say la glas in Arabic? And she looked at me kindly and she said, Yabniti, which means my daughter, it's called mutzajellet. And she left. When I went to pay, the guy behind the counter looked at me wide-eyed and he said, do you have any idea who that was that you just talked to? No. He said, that was Lelayisha the sister of the then king, Hassan II. Apparently, she drove her own car and she did her own shopping. And it should come as no surprise to you that she was loved. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa friend and guide, Tenzi Norgai, conquered Mount Everest, an incredible feat. His main interest came to be the welfare of the Himalayan peoples of Nepal, especially the Sherpas. On one of his many trips back to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of tourist climbers who begged for a photo with the great man. And Hillary obliged. They handed him an ice pick to look the part. Just then, another climber passed Strode up to Hillary saying, Excuse me, that's not how you hold a nice pick. Let me show you. Everyone stood in amazed silence as Hillary thanked the man and let him adjust the pick. Humility is truly beautiful. So, why do we see so little of it? And how can we cultivate more of it? Today, we will take a look at King David's life and see how, in spite of his significant failures, he displayed humility and was called a man after God's own heart. I believe we can learn some invaluable lessons for our complicated, polarized, and divided times. We will draw four characteristics of a humble person as seen in David's life. Humble people wait on God's timing. They know who's who, they repent and they show kindness. The term humility comes from the Latin word humilitas, which comes from the root humus, which means earth, ground, soil, which I loved. Being humble means being rooted, being grounded, knowing where we come from. Or as Andrew Murray said, the only soil in which the graces root. We talk about humble people being down to earth. As we study David's life, we can't help but also reflect on the stark contrast with King Saul, his predecessor. Of course, it's impossible in a short sermon to give credit to the rich life of David, but I will highlight a few stories that showcase his humility. God called David a man after his own heart. If you know anything about King David's life, you know it couldn't have been his moral purity. Remember Bathsheba? For his innocence, remember, he had blood on his hands. So what was it? I think it was his passionate love and deep yearning for God, as we see clearly in the Psalms, and his humility, the way he dealt with his sins and failures. The common thread in the life of the shepherd turned king was his first love for his shepherd and his king. In the books of First and Second Samuel, we find three dominant characters, the prophet Samuel, Saul, and David. And since I'm really bad with numbers, I love that David's accession is dated around 1000 BC. Easy to remember. The period of judges was dominated by this constant cycle of apostasy, repentance, Restoration, and this was repeated in the period of the kings. Israel had demanded to have a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. And Saul had been appointed by Samuel as the first king over Israel. With all his beauty and brilliance, Saul had some major flaws. He was not the first and surely not the last, promising and gifted leader taken down by his own pride. Saul resented the interference of the prophet Samuel. He stubbornly clung to his rights as king and eventually lost his throne. Samuel rebuked Saul. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. In stark contrast, David submitted to God's word and found forgiveness. Having a popular guy like David around aroused Saul's Saul's jealousy. He became obsessed with his rival, of whom it was often said God was with him and that all Israel loved him. Saul sought to kill David and he embarked on a frantic manhunt. When David came upon unsuspecting Saul in a cave, He finally had a chance to get revenge and take justice in his own hands. But he didn't. Listen to what he said. May the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Later, David spared Saul's life a second time. The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Both times, David's men urged him to kill Saul and get rid of him once for all. But David knew better. That is power withheld. That is trusting God's timing. That is being grounded on the promises of God. I admire David's restraint. Waiting is so hard. We now know that the longing for a king on the throne of David, who would rule with justice and righteousness forever, was fulfilled in Jesus. The very first verse of the New Testament says, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And in the very last chapter of the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the root and the offspring of David. Jesus was not ashamed to be called the son of David. I wonder, is there a situation in your life you need to trust God to come through? I do. I want to encourage us this morning to humbly surrender it to God and to his leading and to his timing. David waited on God's timing. In 2 Samuel 7, a key chapter in the Old Testament, the foundation for the Davidic dynasty and the source of messianic hope was laid. God promised David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. Right after David received this incredible promise, what did he do? He sat before the Lord and prayed the prayer that we read in the beginning. He used the word servant over and over in his prayer. Even though he was the king and had many servants, he humbly accepted his role as servant of God. He had grasped this important truth about himself. He knew he owed everything, including his kingship, to God. David's response was not bragging on Instagram about being chosen, but it was worship. As an older Bible teacher once quipped, don't run to the phone, run to the throne. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? David, who loved God, prayed bold prayers. Remember how he, as a young shepherd, addressed the giant Philistine warrior, Goliath. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He knew he could do better. He knew he could never defeat this giant in his own strength. But he knew that his God could. He knew who's who. He knew his place in the larger order of things. He was grounded in his confidence in God. He did not have to take credit. He knew the difference between the creator and the created how different our society would look if our leaders, if we, would remember this. Do you know who's who? Or do you, do I, forget who is the giver of all good things? Do we give thanks to God for everything we are and have? Let's put the rightful king on the throne of our hearts. David knew who's who. And then, of course, there is the infamous story of Bathsheba. The account in scripture is brutally honest and does in no way sugarcoat David's paramount failings. It seems the biblical writer is more concerned about the character of the man God chose and the way he dealt with him than with his splendid military achievements and wealth. I think that we would do well to remember that and to be more concerned about a person's character than their competency. A crucially important reminder for for us parents as we bring up our children and for how we choose our leaders. David had decided not to join his army as they went for war. Instead, he enjoyed the spring evening breeze on the roof, where he happened to see a beautiful woman, Bathsheba. He wanted her, and because he was king, he got her, and got her pregnant. In an effort to cover his tracks, he also got her husband killed. Adultery and murder. David tried to hide it and go on with life. But God, in his mercy, did not let him. He sent the prophet, Nathan, to confront him. Nathan told him a story about two men, a poor and a rich man. The rich man had many sheep, but the poor man had only one little pet lamb that he loved dearly which the rich man promptly killed. On hearing this, David burned with anger against the rich man and demanded his death for such cruelty. Ironically, David's judgment was much harder than what even the law demanded. Does that sound familiar? It is so much easier to judge someone else's faults and yet be completely oblivious to our own. And then Nathan dealt the death blow. You are the man. David was immediately convicted. I have sinned against the Lord. And David penned Psalm 51, which we read in the beginning, right after this incident. He finally broke and confessed his sins, and pleaded for mercy. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. He loved God, and he was sensitive to rebuke and discipline, and finally repented. I admire leaders, who can admit when they are wrong and are humble enough to ask for forgiveness. Saul, who clung fiercely to his kingly status, lost his kingdom. David was more concerned about honoring God than guarding his own reputation. Hidden sin is a joy stealer. It weighs us down David longed for reconciliation with his God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. How about you? Are you weighed down by hidden sin? Are we vulnerable enough to admit when we're wrong? Or are we overly defensive when challenged? Do we need to be right all the time, how do we respond to criticism? The good news is that we don't have to carry our sins around and let them steal our joy. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of First 1 John 1:9. 1 if we claim that we're free of, of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. But if we admit our sins, simply come clean about it. He won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. What good news. David repented. The last story I want to highlight showcasing David's humility is found in 2 Samuel 9. I love this story. King David extended undeserved grace and kindness to a potential rival to the throne. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? When David was told that there was still a son of Jonathan who was lame in both feet, Mephibosheth, he invited him to live in his palace and treated him like a son. He even restored to him all the land that had belonged to Saul. What an incredible act of kindness and humility. And especially touching when we read how Mephibosheth saw himself. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? A humble person can treat everyone with respect. In fact, how we treat people, especially those that others overlook or despise, is the quickest way to find out our level of humility. A humble heart is always willing to learn from others, to talk less and listen more, to have, in the words of Albert Einstein, a holy curiosity about others' life stories. Humble people seek to maximize other people's potential. Do we display undeserved kindness? Not just to our friends, but strangers and outcasts. Humility before God must manifest itself in humility towards men. David showed undeserved kindness. So how do we apply this in the culture we live in in 2023? Our convictions and opinions seem to get increasingly stronger and our respect and civility weaker. We often confuse conviction with arrogance. I love John Dixon's quote. The solution to ideological discord is not tolerance in the postmodern form we frequently find it, the bland affirmation of all viewpoints as equally true and valid, but an ability to profoundly disagree with others and deeply honor them at the same time. Humility does not mean believing things any less. It means treating those we disagree with, with respect. We can hold our convictions firmly, but with a humble heart, speaking truth in love. There are so many issues that could divide us. The world offers them up to us incessantly on a silver platter. Politics, Vaccines, denominations, which songs to sing. When issues become dominant, it will divide us. When Christ is supreme in his rightful place, we can humbly love those we disagree with. John Dixon, in his excellent book, Humilitas, makes the point that humility has not always been a virtue. The ancient Greek and Roman societies valued honor as the ultimate asset and shame as the ultimate deficit. Therefore, humility was not considered virtuous, but was seen as being low, being inferior, being shameful. The greatest fear would have been to be publicly shamed. Ancient Israel was also an honor-shame culture. Humility before God, kings and judges and priests was appropriate, but not lowering yourself before an equal or a lesser. Humility was for slaves, not for respected rabbis. And Jesus turned all that upside down. He said, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. Jesus redefined honor and shame. The cross was the lowest and most shameful place Rome had to offer. The greatest man chose to forego his status for the sake of others. True greatness redefined as humble service. Humility is not something we can produce on our own, but as we let the humble Christ dwell in our hearts and let the Spirit of God indwell us more and more, he will produce and ripen the character of Christ in us, and humility will be the byproduct of giving room to the Spirit of God to transform us. And of course, humble people are very inspiring. I always admired my in-laws for their simple lifestyle. They always lived in the same house, with the same old furniture, drove the same old car. They gave much of their wealth away, going to great lengths to do it anonymously. When David and I were married 30 years ago, she handed me a small booklet entitled, Humility, written by Andrew Murray in 1895, and said, everyone should read this once a year. From her long walk with Jesus, she knew that pride creeps in easily, and that humility would take the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in us, and a constant gaze at the Savior, whom she loved so much. So, in carrying on the legacy of my dear, late mother-in-law, Barbara, I'd like to inspire you to read this book, Humility, once a year. Because, as Andrew Murray said, humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all, because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him, as God, to do all. God called David a man after his own heart, not sinless, but a man who waited on God's timing, who knew and loved God intimately who repented when he sinned and who showed kindness to others. Let's walk daily with the one who is gentle and humble, the one who gave up his power to save us and let him transform us. And if you're listening to this and have not met this humble savior yet, I invite you to open your heart to him today. He speaks over you, that you are to die for, and he proved it by his actions. He gave up everything to give you everything. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. unlimited power surrendered for the sake of others it's before him alone we bow as sinners saved by grace let's pray Jesus you are so beautiful you are humble meek and kind, you left your power and your glory behind and willingly laid it down for us while we were yet sinners. You gave your life so we could live. Help us to never get over this miracle this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We adore you, Jesus. We love you. And we bow down in humility before the only rightful king, Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name we pray.